purpose of this series, Justin recommended that we go through these seven churches. For here we have the Lord Jesus Christ coming to these seven churches in Asia Minor, modern western Turkey. Here were these churches, representative of churches in those areas. And there are commendations and there are criticisms. So our ears should perk up as we look at these as the Lord Jesus Christ brings us into Revelation 3, 1 to 6 tonight, the church that slept, the sleep of death. So let's look at it. I'm going to read um, chapter 3, 1 through 6. Follow with me as I read, and you will see what exactly is be said to the church at Sardis. I'll comment on the location and some of the characteristics and features of this place. Let's just follow with me as I read. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, He who has the seven spirits of God, I should say that this word in my translation has a capital S. There is no capitalization in the Greek language. And so the translators have done a little bit of interpretation there by making it appear as if this is referring to um, some pneumatology, the Holy Spirit that is not necessary based upon the text itself. If that's necessary, it would be for additional reasons. But the seven stars and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. If therefore you will not wake, if therefore you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis not soil their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father. And before his angels, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What what have we seen thus far? In the four churches that we've visited, we've heard of the Lord of the church. He's commended, he's rebuked, he's exhorted, and he's promised. Oh, that our working teams will take all this into consideration I sit on the discipleship team work group and thoroughly enjoyed it. There are about seven or eight very active participants and are doing a wonderful job. 
And I want to publicly thank Jim Shawbrook for leading the way on that for us. And my um, encouragement to all others who have met and will meet, this is a good thing that we're doing with this vision 2020. Where do we want to be in five years? Well, Jesus said his commendations have been for hard work, endurance through hardships, hating false doctrine, and remaining true to Christ. He has rebuked three churches for church at Ephesus having forsaken her first love, tolerating false teaching, and immorality. He's exhorted the churches to repent, to do the things they did at first, not be afraid to be faithful to the point of death, and hold on to Bible-based convictions. He's promised overcomers, those who are faithful, those that is who overcomers would be, that they will eat from the tree of life, receive a crown of life, not be hurt by the second death, receive hidden manna, a white stone with a new name on it, and they will have authority over the nations and will have the morning star. Now we come to the fifth of these churches, Sardis. I'd like to make two statements as we step into this experience of the church that slept. First of all, I will say that it is possible, though not welcome, but it is possible for a church to slowly slip into a spiritual coma and lose its effectiveness. Complacency and self-satisfaction can eat a church's lunch. This is perhaps that one of all the seven churches, this gets as much rebuke as any, and it's a very grievous situation. The church at Sardis was such a church. Is located approximately 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. It's, um, well, you, if you've got a map in the back of your Bible, we won't need necessarily to jump ahead on this, but it's at a junction of principal highways linking Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum with the high country of Inner Asia Minor. It's set on a very important trade route. That was this a key factor as to some of the conditions that existed in this church. And what we're going to be seeing here in a moment is that, like city, like church, how often the churches pick up the sins of the culture and take on the personality of the culture. It's a warning to us. So it was built, this city was built on Mount Maltmolus, I, Beth and I visited this area. We walked around the area and what's left of some of the ancient ruins back in 1999. And I have have mental pictures of uh, the river, for example, that flows by this, uh, flows by this outcrop. It's a plateau actually that exists. And the mountain with an acropolis up behind it This is where the city sat. And it was easily defendable. 
it was, um, this enters into some things that come up a little on into the description of this church. Uh, it had three sides, which were, looked like just sheer drop downs. And in the back was this 800 foot Acropolis that went up behind it. So it looked like a pretty good fortress. I don't know. That I get a picture of the Lord of the Rings. There was one city in there that reminded me uh, of this particular city. It was the capital and it was the residence of the Lydian king Croesus. Wealthy, it was a wealthy city noted for its coinage, gold and silver. It was an active commercial center. On an important trade route, textiles and the dye manufacturing, the wool industry was a significant uh, industry here. I could pause and say this about Croesus, that there is a saying, though you may not be familiar with it, as rich as Croesus. Some think that the story of Midas, and you've heard the story of the King Midas touch, where everything he touched turned to gold, comes from King Croesus. Uh, Croesus um, was a super wealthy king because he sat in this, this city sat in a, as I said, a, a very important trade route. It, it gave it a lot of commercial uh, advantages and a lot of money flowed back and forth from east to west. But there's a river in which gold was found. Stood and looked at that river. Not a particularly impressive river, but it doesn't have to be to have gold in it. And uh, it was a source of gold, and there was silver and gold that were mined in that area. And this city was the capital of this kingdom of Lydia. Croesus became so, um, how shall I say this? He became so um, proud, and I would say a sense of self-sufficiency and complacent, that he wanted to, he didn't fear anyone taking the city because of its apparently impregnable position where it sat. And he began to think of the possibilities of going and challenging the Persians, the great Persian Empire. As the story goes, that he went to the Delphic Oracle. This was sort of your, your ancient crystal ball gazer in the area. And asked for some wisdom as to whether he should go and take on Persia moving back toward the east, taking on the Persian Empire. And the answer was, you will destroy a great empire. With that, he felt a bit bolstered and uh, ready and thought that this was just what he needed to do so. Well, he thought that, of course, was a prophecy of his victory, and he went across the Halos River to take on the Persian army, not a good decision. He was thoroughly defeated, and it began to be the beginning of the end of what little empire he did have. He failed to take into account, as well oracles would often do, to word their statements in such a way that it could be 
spun in more than one way. Yes, he did destroy a great empire. It was his that became destroyed. Minor point. (laughs) He missed it. The temple of Artemis was located here in Sibele as well, who was a nature goddess. Sardis was, had an impressive cemetery of a thousand hills. And it was so named because of hundreds of burial mounds visible on the skyline some seven miles from Sardis. It was a place where there was an active worship of nature. And it was a place in which the gods of the afterlife and the gods ruling over death were worshipped. A second thing we need to note about this church is that the only hope for a church, a dying church, is the Lord of the church holding life-giving power. I want to put that up front because there is hope for this church. This, this church is not written off. This church is given an opportunity to repent. And so Christ is the one who has the power to bestow. Now, that brings me to this opening sentence. You know, I've said that these descriptive statements right at the serve as headers to each of these churches. They fit the, they're, they're suitable to the circumstances in the church and the problem that church faced or the strength of that church. It says that it holds the seven spirits of God, that there was power necessary. What is this? What are the spirits? Fullness of, some have suggested it's a reference to the fullness of power of the Holy Spirit. That is countered by the fact that where do we have a sevenish number to so understand the, the unity of the Godhead and especially the unity of the Holy Spirit? Some therefore said though that it still means the fullness of power and spirit of the Spirit. Noticing also that it makes us aware of the fact that this church needed power. It needed something outside of itself to energize it, to revive it, to bring it forth out of its dying state, which we'll, we'll consider. So this special emphasis on power right here at the beginning, and these seven stars would be the seven pastors of the churches in Asia Minor. These seven stars, and some suggest maybe they're seven angels. I'm not hard here to argue that point, but to simply say that the issue of authority is presented up front. And this church has an authority problem. That when authority, there's a pushback against the Lord of the church and the authority of his word, a church has a heavy price to pay. So here we are then with these seven spirits, seven stars, I think probably emphasizing the fact that Christ is in complete control of its leadership, wanting them to know that the leadership is ultimately the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. The messengers of the church belong to Christ. See the chain of command, if you will, of responsibility and authority. 
the church at Sardis was accountable to Christ. The, the table is set where that is the centerpiece. Our church is accountable to Jesus Christ. We have a schematic that we've used through the years to show the various officers and their responsibilities and how the varying church uh, working groups and committees function. But as my memory serves me correctly, I think that uh, have it somewhere that we've set up above that the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And no one individual or neither a group of elders are are the head of the church. We are, hopefully, we see our, we want to see ourselves as servant leaders. We are the under shepherds of the chief shepherd. And that's where we want to go and see what comes of this church then. Seems that this church has forgotten the authority of Jesus Christ. So here we better be examining ourselves as we work through it. So let me move us on through and see exactly what we have to learn. I will gather up verses 1 and 2 with the way in which the issues that are raised there and say it this way with I'm trying to give some kind of of caption for these two verses that the church a church can have a reputation for being for much activity and yet be spiritually dead it says you are dead what's this mean I'm reminded of a similar statement in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 6, referring to widows who were living for themselves. Widows in the church, living for their own pleasure. Sad to say, Christians can begin to follow their culture. Remember what I said? The sins of the culture become the sins of the church. And that a church can then begin to become complacent and self-satisfied and live for pleasure, look for comforts. And when we begin to think of our comforts more than sacrifice, more than you know, submission to authority, and making the, taking the route of servanthood, we're in trouble. So they were void of any real vitality and genuine fruitfulness. That's the way I would understand what he's saying about you're dead. And your faith is not active. It needs to be vitalized. It needs to be energized. It needs to be changed so that it will begin to work, work in behalf of others. And that infuses life into that and growth. You know, faith is a process in the Christian life. Sure, it's an event. And I wrote that article in the bulletin this morning to try to recognize um, in some small way the Reformation the Protestant Reformation, justification by faith alone. And there is that crisis moment when we come to faith in Christ. But then there is a process of faith by which we live our daily lives before him. Now, with that in mind, I want to warn us, based on what I see at this church, namely self-deception can make a church lose touch with reality. A church can be deceived into thinking all is well, When it is actually living on the perfume of its past accomplishments. And try to keep in mind some of the things that I've said about the city of Sardis and its wealth and the complacency and its demise. A famous, as I said, a famous cemetery was only seven miles from this city. 
a fitting, a fitting symbol for the spiritual condition of this church. I've always been, I guess, amused is the word. I, it's a mixture of motive, or a mixture of emotions. When you've seen these, you go down the road and you look, and there's this church that's sitting out here on an open space, and there is this massive cemetery. Um, we've had people recommend from time to time at Baraka that we should start a cemetery. I, this is just my opinion, but I've always thought of, do we really want to end up being a church that's sitting in the middle of a cemetery? I, I know we need cemeteries, but uh, sometimes these churches out in, most often you see them in rural areas, if far greater number of people represented in those uh, grave sites than are in the actual church itself. But as I indicated in the bulletin this, for today, that it would seem that this church had a growing number of people who were dying in the church. That is, their faith was withering. It was not vital. It was not vibrant. It was not the, there were not, their works weren't completed. Their efforts were focused more on their, themselves than they were on bringing glory to God. So there was a serious deficiency in how they were going about what they were doing in that church, and they thought all was well. So therefore, we know that uh, we, uh, we have to understand the difference between appearance and reality. Simply because we have people sitting in chairs, and far as I know, we know rigor mortis is not set in on any of us, and that a church can be filled with people who are alive and breathing but be dead. And so we had best learn the difference between appearance and reality. God knows the difference. It can be faked. I, just as an aside, you know, I enjoy old movies, and I can't help but thinking of things uh, along this line. There is a movie. Um, was it Gary Cooper? And it was called, it's called Unconquered. I just loved this movie as a kid. I still do as an adult. And I do remember this one scene that things got to the place where uh, it was like all was lost. All was lost. There were no reinforcements coming to save this settlement from a, a tribe of Indians on the war, I think of the Iroquois, the Indians on the warpath. And so what they did to try to shift the psychological advantage and gain the upper hand is that they arranged it so that they would take all the dead, the bodies off the field of battle of the soldiers. And they put them in wagons and put them on horses and they had them, and they had them all propped up. And so they then began to just come in down the road. It looked like all these fresh recruits were coming to save the day. Well, as old movies were, Indians always seem to get the short end of the stick and were not really uh, given the credit for being very intelligent uh, warriors. But they, these warriors who were dead were propped up to look like they were living. Churches can be propped up to look like they are living but are dead. That's what he's saying. Form, ritual, activities, programs can become a substitute for spiritual power. Be careful, church. Be careful. You can even get committed to a creed a system of belief, and be dead. A dead church, you can have meetings, but the gospel is in a coffin. You have to push and listen long and hard to hear the gospel. I, I, I insist on this for myself. 
when we have opportunity, when we stand before people, whether it's weddings or funerals or gospel, 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 we mustn't begin to presume that people know the gospel. A dead church may be experiencing emotional intoxication and think that's the work of the spirit. That's possible that you can make a false conclusion to think that emotionalism is synonymous with the work of the Holy Spirit. A dead church can recite its beliefs, say its prayers, pay the bills, have its meals, but the fire has gone out. There is not a passion for the Lord in that the works that are engaged in are imperfect. A church can die spiritually by being occupied with past achievements, accommodating the world, forfeiting the offense of the cross, succumbing to spiritual laziness. These are things that we have to look for. We have to assess ourselves. We can become the perfect model of an inoffensive Christianity. I quite frankly think that this may very well be the besetting sin of the present generation. It's in our culture. We don't want to offend anybody. Well, we hear this all the time in the news. I'm offended. I'm offended by this, that, or the other. Some symbol, some statement, something happened somewhere. Somebody said something. We're offended. And so churches can then begin to absorb this outlook. We shouldn't, oh, if we really love, if we're really sweet and kind and compassionate, we won't offend anybody. Oh, really? Now, it is possibly offensive just by being uh, grumpy, irritable, cranky, and negative and reactionary. No, 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 no. I'm not speaking of that. But, I mean, there is the offense of the cross, the offense of the gospel. We can have slick advertising, a lot of programs, a well-oiled organization. Spiritual laziness can eat away at the church. Unwillingness to discipline one's life for the sake of godliness. Just get a church which begins to take, um, doesn't take Bible reading seriously, personal devotion. You think of the things that are really left up to your own initiative. We, leaders, we can't uh, coerce and make those things happen, nor can we of one another, can we? How is your own life with the Lord? Walk with him. Do you read the scriptures? Do you pray? Or you find yourself, well, somebody else can do that. I'm pretty busy. Yeah, some of those older people, they've got, they can't go a lot of places, so let them take care of it. No, 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 no. We all have to enter into what? As each of us would be our own furnace, if you will, spiritual furnace. There is the heat of the work that drives the energy of the church. But we can have a lethargic attitude toward a, uh, the, the spiritual sustainers, such as prayer, scripture, personal inventory, absence from the assembly. We really don't harp on that. It is a pastoral tendency, I know, to want to do it sometimes. I don't know. I can't speak for Justin. But no pastor is unaware of the fact when there are empty seats. And when you're standing there and you're looking at fabric rather than people, it's not particularly exhilarating. And and you can't help but wonder. This is the confessions of of a pastor emeritus, is that you can't wonder... 
you know, I wonder where so-and-so. Sometimes they're over there. Well, that person, sometimes they're over there, but, you know, a lot of times they aren't here. And so you just, you got to be careful. Your imagination can just do bad things to you. What are they doing? Was, hey, was TV pretty good this morning? Uh, hey, how'd you like to sleep? Sleeping into 9 o'clock. No, I, I can't fathom that, what that's like. But uh, it's just not the way I'm wired. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But I know that churches can then be getting, and if you want to get lethargic and indifferent and complacent, there are some things that can measure to a certain extent. So a dying church then can have a works deficiency disorder. What's that like? He says, I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of God. The Sardinian church was always stopping short of the goal which the Lord intended. That's just an interesting statement. Your works are not complete. They, they went as far as doctrine, but the real purity, the real, uh, the full, energized, spirit-directed, motivated works were lacking. You can have works, but they can be defective and minimized, shortened in their effectiveness. So I think this is the problem here. Maybe it would help if I do this. Let me just take that you are dead thing. I want to squeeze that a little bit more. I know it's back in verse 1. We haven't (laughs) advanced very far. But let me say something about you are dead. What's it mean to be dead? I think what he's saying, and as we'll go on to see this, your works are are not complete, that the life had gone out of the assembly. The activity was merely self-serving. You can begin to exist to exist. That happens to churches. It's easy to fall into it because then your organization, your income, that is the money that it takes to keep things going, you can therefore, you've got to have people to keep it going. And so you can then begin to look at a very um, micro, micro approach to it. Works are not perfected before God. What does Jesus expect? Jesus expects assessment. I think that's part of what we're doing in this 2020. So, I mean, we're not there just to, it's not just navel-gazing and um, second-guessing ourselves and, and just being critical. No, I've not picked that up in this. That's why I'm, I really appreciate what those have done who put this together and the way it's going. It's thinking about what can we be doing in the next year, two, three, four, and five. What can we be doing? So there is assessment. That we know, we need to know what works are to be accomplished. Works that glorify God, not the worker. So you see, this is some of the stuff that goes into these work groups, these teams. Are our works pleasing to God? What are our motives? Is it, are they joyful? Are we doing it out of uh, just a sense of complaining duty? Is it grim? Is there a sense of self-sufficiency that we can go about what we're doing and we're not seeking the Lord? Oh, Lord, grant us the grace that as I prepare a sermon, I can speak for teacher, preachers, 
that, Lord, I can't depend upon preparation and such, not by might, not by power, but it's by your spirit. I prepare. I do what I can with what I have and the gifts I have, as limited as they may be, but that's under God's sovereign control. But, Lord, we depend on you. You must work. You can change. You only can change hearts. You only. All right, let's accelerate a bit because we need to consider next then verses 2, 3. I would summarize them this way. That a spiritually dead church can be raised to new life by waking up and repenting. Let's examine this. The church must come to its spiritual senses, face reality, and take decisive action. Look at his language here. He said, wake up. That word, um, I'll say the Greek word. You'll pick up an English word for it. Um, Gregoreo. Anybody named Gregory? Ah, you're, a, you're supposed to be a watchman. <laughs> a watchman. That's your name. And Jesus used this in the Olivet Discourse. Watch, therefore, with regard to the coming of Christ, Revelation 16. So to stay spiritually alert is to stay awake spiritually, excuse me, to stay awake spiritually is to stay on the alert. Being alert, aware of your surroundings. What's going on? Not getting into a blue funk of just being content with the status quo. But when you come to church, you attempt to make yourself aware of your surroundings. People. For prayer. For encouragement. For involvement. In ministry. Whatever gifts God has given to you. To me. You keep a sharp eye out for dangers. Are there teachings that we're tolerating? That could be. That are pernicious. And could undercut our vitality and effectiveness. We have to be careful that we would not let the enemy slip in. It could be anger that's being tolerated. It could be some member who's living in an open, immoral situation. And we begin to want, let's look the other way. Ah, confrontation. That's going to be, that's a lot of work. Dealing with sin is, that's, uh, that's hard. That's difficult. But reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Then he says, strengthen, strengthen. The word sterizo, I don't know, I don't know if steroids comes from this. I'm not going to stretch that point, but it doesn't make any difference. It means to firm up your convictions. Uh, protection from being easily blown about by the winds of our culture. Don't be like a feather blown in the wind. Strengthen. All right, come on, muscle up. And so that you are, you have the resistance necessary. You can do the lifting, that is, do the work, do the thinking, do the teaching, do what's necessary to make the church alive and strong. I would say, therefore, it's if I may just tip a little bit to the those who are given the gift of teaching, but you don't have to have the gift of teaching to teach. But you can certainly want to say, if you are able to teach and you love to study the Bible and you the church needs teachers. Teachers. Maybe you have an opportunity to teach Sunday school class. Oh, I just don't know. That's four or five hours a week. Maybe can't do it. 
That's understandable sometimes. We need sabbaticals. We need breaks. Doing it all year round every year takes a special kind of calling and, and other things. But do you? Do you take the time? You have access to the word. You can teach. And can you help out in that way? Just one example. So therefore, he's saying, watch out. Be alert. You remember I told you about this church and where it was located? This is an interesting sidelight. I told you that like city, like city, like church, that the ancient city of Sardis, when it was eventually was attacked directly, that the Persian army um, camped outside and looking, how in the world are we going to get to this place? It looked impregnable. It had these three sides, then the Acropolis in the back, the 800-foot mountain in the back. What do we do? One alert Persian soldier happened to be looking very closely late one afternoon, and he saw that a Sardinian soldier dropped his helmet, and it went tumbling down the side, this wall, outcropping, the rock. Then he noticed that the soldier, down after it, very carefully, putting his feet, it was um, a little bit like repelling, but uh, without the rope, but he knew where to go, and he went down and got his helmet and went back up. All right, so as occurs to this soldier, there, this city is not as um, indefensible indef- as it may appear. And so during the night, a cadre of Persian, Persian soldiers went, and he, had, he noted carefully what steps had been taken, the crevices in the rocks. And, and because the Sardinians didn't expect anybody to be able to come up and break through and get inside the walls, it was just not guarded. Well, the rest is history. They got in. They got into the city. The city fell because of that. You know, the Sardinian church, in the, they have a history. Now, that occurred like 500 years before this was written. But the Sardinian church had a memory of that. And that is why you will notice in the passage, he says, remember. You see that? Remember? Remember? Memory can be an important means of returning to a life of obedience and responsiveness to the Lord. There's a responsibility to remember. There is a right way and a wrong way to visit the past. Now, we have to do some of that in this 2020 thing. It's inevitable. In this discipleship working group, uh, we think about things we've done. Sometimes uh, it may happen that some of the older members who are sitting on one of the committees thinking, and the younger ones say, no, 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 no. We don't, we're not being critical here. We're not saying, <laughs> I'll just say for myself, I'm okay. I know one thing. I am not perfect and nothing has been perfect having been done in the past. And there have been mistakes and there, you know, you grow, you mature, you would like to do things differently. So if we could all just understand that it's not necessarily a, it's, it's, it's not an, shouldn't be an offensive thing in itself to do a biblically guided, uh, spiritually sensitive assessment of our past. We have to. 
And if we don't, that's where we get into trouble. And we begin to, you know, we never did it, what, the seven last words of the church, we never did it that way before. And so, so there's a right way and a wrong way. The Sardinians could have been revived by a tour of their rich spiritual heritage. Think of the things that were done right. Think of what God has done. Answers to prayer. Lives have been changed. All right. Those things can be of great value. The initial hearing of the gospel. It had results. So therefore, when he says, your works are not perfected before God. I think what he's referring to there, works that were being moved along by the wrong motives. They didn't glorify God. And who knows? I'm, you know, I just happened to think of the one church, a church, the church at Corinth, where in the passage in 1 Corinthians 3, it says, works, gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, and stubble. You know what the context is there. We've got an application, I think, and immediately so, that the church had kind of fallen out into personality cults, like church was a beauty contest. Hey, Paul, he's my guy. He's the theologian. Some of this at Apollos. Oh, but boy, he can really speak. And Peter, he was with the Lord. And then there were the really super pious ones. We're with Jesus. And Paul Paul said, this is not right. And then it's in the on into there that he goes, you get this party spirit. So I'm just giving you an example how there were works. There was activity. But you can see what's moving it along. What's motivating it? What's, what's happening here? I'll leave that with you, though he does say, time doesn't allow for unpacking it, but he says, keep it. You see that? In, keep it, keep it. Keep the commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. I'm going to let it rest at that. Thirdly, and this is the conclusion, a spiritually dying church can have a remnant of those who have remained faithful to Christ. By the way, I know I didn't unpack the word repent. It's, it, it comes up in these churches, and I've said it before, but I don't mean to minimize it. But what he's asking the church to do, Christians, you have got a responsibility. You and I, when the Spirit of God brings something to our mind, this is what Jesus said, you repent. What do you do? You acknowledge your, we acknowledge our our sin, our faults, our failures, Lord. And you do a 180. That's what you do. You change your mind. I don't mind that word at all for repent. Some of uh, just feeling sorry for your sins, that's not going to cut it. It's when you change your mind, things. I don't know about you. When I change my mind, usually things, circumstances change. Right? <laughs> and so that's what he's saying. Repent. And you need to have an entirely, on a 180, a different outlook and movement. With that said, let's finish. Spiritually dying church can have a remnant of those who have remained faithful to Christ. You have a few in Sardis who do not soil their garments. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord for those. I hesitate. I'll say it. We refer to 20% doing the 80% of the work and 100%. And then there is an 80% ratio of those who don't do the work that the 20% do. I won't say that that's the issue here, but I say the primary issue is not who's working and who's not, because you could have a 20% and they could all be (laughs) self-righteous, like, look what we're doing. But I think what he's stressing here is this, that there were those in the church who were being faithful. 
And that, but the majority of the church had soil garnets. There was sin. A few didn't have soil garnets. I'm reminded of the soil of the, excuse me, the, the garment industry in the area and why this was a particular, particular of interest. Those who had with unsoiled garments were successfully doing what? Resisting temptation. We're not unsaved people. They're Christians who don't resist temptation very well. Um, they had been victorious over sin, had demonstrated practical righteousness. Their garments not soiled. Not perfect, but going on and being an example and being a blessing to many. May their tribe increase. And then there were those whose garments were soiled, practicing outward piety, focusing on outward appearance, not concerned with purity of heart and life in a pagan society. Dirty, dirty. So now let me proceed to kind of put this together and conclude it. Believers who refuse to compromise with the world and who fill their lives with God-honoring deeds will be rewarded by the Lord of the church. That's what he's saying. Rewards. Clothed with white garments. These are the overcomers. Overcomers are those who will be rewarded because they have been consistently obedient to God's word to their time of death in the second coming, whichever comes first. Are you one of those? Are you? Is everyone in the local church a growing, progressing Christian, overcoming and exemplifying Christ in extraordinary ways? I wish it were so. I wish it were so. But it isn't. But I don't present that just as a lament. I'm saying that what the Lord is saying, thank God there is a remnant here. And that non-overcomers, who are the non-overcomers? Unbelievers? No, not in this context. Non-overcomers are believers who've not dealt with sin in a consistently repentant way. The overcomers will enjoy special benefits in heaven because of their faithfulness to Christ on earth. Those are the ones who are going to be close to the Lord, fellowship with him, serve, rule in the kingdom. The white garments Celebration. That's the point of the white. Celebration. There was a custom in, in the Roman Empire, especially in the city of Rome, the triumphus, when a general would come back from victories on the battlefield and he would pause with his armies out across the Tiber River, come in and announce that there was the victorious army with all of the, all of the, um, uh, loot of war and all that came with it with prisoners and with uh, gold and silver and what have you and announcement would be made it's coming we're going to have a like a ticker tape parade and then people would hurry and scurry about to bring and dress uh, to go into homes and dress in white because this was a this was a great moment you know the roman empire it covered so much territory and Long, far-flung battle, victory on battlefields, and they came into the city, and the whole city celebrated with festivals and offerings to the gods, and everyone dressed in white in a celebratory way. I think that's the background here. So these overcomers are believers who've cleansed their own robes by confessing, by confession, appropriation of the blood of the lamb, confessing sins, 
Their garments are not soiled. And so the faithful and persevering life in Christ is rewarded. Not everyone is rewarded equally. Let me go to the next statement. I want to pull some things together here quickly. Christ's faithful people need have no fear of not being remembered and honored by him. He uses litotes to do that. You know what litotes is, don't you? We use it all the time. I walked in here this morning and Wade was uh, saying something to this effect for the group. That was not bad. Am I right? You said that was not bad. I mean, it it was good. In other words, it was good. (laughs) Things came together. We do this. And this is what Paul meant, for example, when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What did he really mean? I'm proud of it. (laughs) That's what he meant. I'm proud of the gospel. So when he says this, uh, this is the invitation then to do what? It is to receive the honored place in the kingdom. And there will be rewards. You know, I've got to think the judgment of the seat of Christ may have some similarities to the court of honor. We had one of these here a few months ago. Do you know what it's like? Boy Scouts, I went to those once upon a time. The Boy Scouts, you know, he moved tenderfoot. Second class, first class, star, life, and what's the next? Is the eagle? Eagles after life, okay. And big, big event. You know the merit badges, the achievements, and you know some get to some may get tenderfoot, just stall out. Some get second class, stall out. Some can go all the way to eagle. What is an honor court? It is the place in a public recognition of achievement. You know, works are meritorious. Did you know that? No, I'm not a heretic. Listen to me. Listen. Works are not meritorious in justifying us before God. No, 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 no. I'll never take my stand before God based on my works. It's the imputed righteousness of Christ. I don't know that I put that in that article this morning. I should have put that in. That imputed righteousness of Christ. A righteousness outside of me is put to my account. One that I do not have. That's justification by faith. Ah, but what about those works to which we're called and which the wording is so often associated? Repay, 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 repay. What is that? That is the meritorious nature of works and sanctification and growth and serving Christ. And there will be rewards. I think this is what he's saying to encourage these believers. Jesus Christ will acknowledge every faithful believer before the saints, the angels, and the Father. When he says, I'll confess your name, that's the court of honor. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful, this is Mark 8, 38, and a sinful generation of him, of him, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes in his glory, the Father, with his holy angels. But to have your name confessed is the court of honor and says, you've confessed me, I confess you before all these. I think there is just... Unfortunately, many have a really low view of the judgment seat of Christ. Think it's going to be a pink tea affair. And there's going to be some shame. There's going to be some sense of loss. Lord, I want to serve you and reward you. You say, oh, that's so mercenary. No, 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 no. Not if the Lord 
has, has ordained it for the energizing, by the energizing work of the Spirit and the work of, of, of making it possible by His grace, it brings greater glory to Him. And we can serve Him and grow with greater capacity in the kingdom, ruling over ten cities. Who knows what? For your glory, Lord, thank you. All right, well, with that said, this is where I think then he concludes, and I'll conclude it. I'm over. Overcomers, overcomers stay awake spiritually by fixing their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. They remain faith watchful in the light of the promise of the coming of Christ. Are you watchful? Are you alert? We got to get up in the mornings and get ourselves alert, Lord. Oh, we ought to, I think, invaluably, it's invaluable. Have a routine at the beginning of your day. Some measure, even if you're, even if some of your mornings are like Dagwood's mornings, you know. Remember, you, okay, I lost 98% of you. You're running out the door with your coffee and your wife is standing there holding your lunch, man. <laughs> but you get in the car. I know someone had told me recently, I asked him if he was, did you listen to 680 The Fan? He said, no, I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't bragging. He just said, no, I tell you, there's just so much going on in my life. I'm just having to use the time for some scripture and prayer. Good, good. This is the stuff that makes for overcomers. This is what, this is what takes a dying church. And if you get 99% of your people, you can really blow the roof off the place. With all kinds of ministries and work done for others and serving. Oh, it's just so energizing. Overcomers stay awake spiritually by listening to what the Spirit says to the churches. That's what he says. He's got ears. You can take your hands, put them up on your ears, count them. One ear, two ears. Anybody have two ears? Uh, you may be a little deep in one ear, so we won't count that. We got ears. Are we hearing? Lord, enable us to hear better. Here was spiritual perception. God, I pray that in this 2020 vision that we are striving for, Lord, we, we again, we, we, Lord, we're not trying to predict, tell you what you must do, but we want to do what brings you honor and glory. Help us through this process. And as we assess our own personal lives, that we'll be ready, quick to repent when we need to. So help us, Jesus, in Christ's name. Amen.